Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, as Lisa just reported, it happened. So we finally got the Department of Justice approving T-Mobile's acquisition of Sprint, clearing one of the biggest hurdles left to get this deal done. This deal was announced more than a year ago, folks. Uh, to help us break it down, what the DOJ actually said today is Nabila Ahmed. She is a deals reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, uh, Nabila, what will the what is this DOJ approval? What does it really look like? DOJ is requiring Sprint and T-Mobile to divest Sprint's um, prepaid businesses. So this includes Boost Mobile, Virgin Mobile and Sprint's own prepaid brand to DISH and also give them some spectrum assets. And on top of that, they have to make available to DISH at least 20,000 cell sites and hundreds of retail locations so that DISH can actually you know, do its business with consumers. So far, the market response has indicated that people are underwhelmed by Dish's involvement here and think that this is a wholesale win for T-Mobile, Sprint, as well as Verizon and AT&T. Is that what people are saying who you speak to as well, Nabila? Lisa, the question, I mean, it can't both be a win for Sprint and T-Mobile and for Dish, can it? I mean, so yeah, you can argue that Dish, you know, through this deal will be set up to become a really strong fourth carrier, but it's going to take a really long time. So you, you've got Sprint and T-Mobile being strengthened here, but Dish is going to be a distant fourth, I think. And, you know, Macon Delrahim today just said that the remedy set up Dish as a disruptive force in wireless. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> sure. I want to bring it to the equation. Uh, Jennifer Reed. Jennifer is a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She also joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Jen, from your antitrust perspective, uh, is there anything unusual in what came out of the DOJ today? You know, I don't think that there's anything unusual, but the one thing I do want to push back on, because I've, I've heard from many that this is really not going to create a fourth competitor and, and, you know, what is the DOJ thinking? But I will have to say that the DOJ knows how much opposition there's been to this deal and how much opposition there may be to this settlement, and they're really still coming off that loss, you know, from AT&T, Time Warner. And I do think that they're going to be very careful about what they do here, and they vet these divestiture packages very carefully, and I have to think they went through it with with a fine-tooth comb and at least are convinced that this will do the trick. But but in terms of uh, being unusual or unique, I think the time it took was unusual, how much came out to the public was unusual, and even the announcement today was a bit unusual. I'm surprised to hear you say this. Do you think that markets are sort of underestimating how good this deal could potentially be for DISH? Well, it's possible. That's one thing. But it could also be that they still have a challenge, the companies with the state lawsuit. So this isn't over uh, because they still have a challenge. They still have to go to court and they either have to win in court or they have to ultimately settle with the states in order to get this deal closed. The other thing is that Dish has been trading for a long time on the expectation that they sell their spectrum assets and make a ton of money out of that. This deal means that Dish will not, that's not what's going to be happening because this deal will mean that Dish actually can't sell control of those assets to anybody for three years. So that may be another reason why you're seeing Dish Mm -hmm. kind of uh, share price performance being underwhelming today. So Nabila, what's the sense on timing when this thing can actually close? 
Well, I guess they could close now, even though the lawsuit from the state AGs is pending. They can technically do that. But my understanding is that the companies are actually going to be looking to settle with the state AGs, these the uh, 12 states and the District of Columbia. And, you know, the court date is coming up in, in early October, but they're going to try to settle before that. I love how Paul asks the question, you know, when are they going to finally settle this? It's like, when can we stop talking about this deal that was about to Never. happen? When can the bankers actually I should just mention, uh, dish shares are up 2.5%, so people do see some potential upside here. Uh, much bigger gains, though, so far year-to-date on both T-Mobile and Sprint. I do have to wonder, Tara LaChapelle of Bloomberg Opinion earlier today was asking the question really wisely. Why are antitrust regulators not more focused on the wireless carriers in the same way that they are big tech, Jen? Well, I think the issue is that when they open these investigations, they're usually based on complaints. This is what triggers it. And true antitrust complaints, not not complaints that I just don't like this company, but this company is doing things that thwart me as a new competitor or in increased consumer prices. And when those complaints come in, this is what leads to an investigation. And usually it will be an investigation of a company that's dominant, dominant within a, a market. And if you look at wireless, while we call it a concentrated market and we have big carriers, you can't really say any one of them is necessarily dominant. No, but you could say that the uh, fight between T-Mobile and Sprint lowered costs for consumers materially. Well, absolutely. And that eliminating that fight will end up increasing costs for everyone, which is the reason why people think that AT&T and Verizon are going to be such big winners from this high up. So... I mean, Nabila, come in here. I mean, what's the, what's the counter argument? <laughs> what's the counter argument that, you know, America is going to be leading in 5G. This is going to be good for consumers. That's the counter argument. You know, this is what Macon Del Rahim wanted to do with this settlement is to be able to say this is actually going to be good for consumers. And if you had Sprint was left behind, as we know, Lisa, Sprint's got a, a lot of its own issues and and, you know, it may have gone broke or would have needed to have been taken over by somebody else. It would have needed a partner at the very least. Um, so this is a way of ensuring that you have a stronger third carrier as well as a, an emerging fourth carrier. It's been such a long time to build. If I forget the original terms of the deal, <laughs> but is Masahiro-san and SoftBank, are they exiting completely their investment out of They're not. They're they not. some into the new company? They are going to be still in the new company, but Deutsche Telekom will be the controlling shareholder. And the terms, just to remind everyone, um, so it's $26.5 billion um, is, is the overall headline value. And actually, they're saying that even though they're making these divestitures, um, their planned $43 billion of synergies will still stand. Jen? And I was going to say, Lisa, the argument that you just made, that you asked Nabila about, is exactly what the state's argument is in court. And the answer is going to be that the remedy is not going to allow the other three wireless carriers to raise prices, that that's going to constrain their ability to raise prices. So that's exactly what the fight is going to be going forward. And the one last thing I should say is that, you know, we are still waiting for formal FCC clearance here. So the companies technically can't close until they get that. And that might not be till September. When that happens, the states may have to go to court to seek an emergency order to keep the companies from closing. This is so interesting to me. I mean, yes, we've been talking about this deal forever, <laughs> but it, it involves so much and it involves, you know, so many different players. And I'm just wondering, Jen, uh, what's the next step with some of these state lawsuits? I mean, we, we've heard that they're probably going to settle. Is that your sense as well? Right now, I don't see it that way. I, I think the states are really dug in. Now, I, the companies are going to go in there and try hard to settle. And the states have more flexibility than the Department of Justice does in terms of what they can accept. They can even accept something like money just put into a fund or promise 
promises to build out even 4G in certain rural areas. So I think that the companies will be trying very hard to do that. The next step right now is an August 1st meeting to hammer out the schedule. There was an October 7th trial date that was agreed upon, but it was contingent on T-Mobile and Sprint getting this deal, uh, the, the terms of the deal done July 12th, and that didn't happen. So Nabila, just real quickly, T-Mobile, what are they going to do with these Sprint assets? Is there costs are taken out? Is it revenue synergies? What's the upside here? Yeah, I mean, they've got these $43 billion of synergies, which will be out of operational costs. And really what they're getting is really good quality mid-band spectrum. Sprint has a lot of that. And that, you know, this is what they're going to use to build out the 5G network. Nabila Ahmed, thank you so much for being with us. Jennifer Ree, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, and Nabila of Bloomberg News, thank you both for being here and uh, parsing through the DOJ approval. It is official. Uh, it is official that they have approved the tie-up between Sprint and T-Mobile. Right now, we want to turn our attention to uh, to the Intel. Intel shares rose today after reporting second quarter earnings that beat expectations. It gave an upbeat forecast for chip sales, sort of an indi key indicator. Uh, we're very excited that we're about to hear from the CEO himself about what the outlook might be. There's been a lot of question recently about the outlook given China's slowdown, given global economy. Uh, so we're going to turn our attention over to Intel CEO Robert Swan, talking with Bloomberg anchors Vonnie Quinn and Guy Johnson. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. If you speak with any chief executive or chief financial officer of a big company, the buzzword today is artificial intelligence. How do you use it? How can we best get ahead of our competitors uh, by understanding our business and deploying it uh, in a way that makes our, our, our employment more efficient? Joining us now is someone who knows a lot about it, Don White, chief executive officer and founder of Satisfy Labs in New York. So Don, before we get into sort of the big conundrum of where artificial intelligence can be deployed right now and in the future, just Give us a sense of what Satisfy Labs is. Satisfy Labs is an AI knowledge management platform. That means we take information data and convert it into a way that machines can understand. Big buzzword around AI is that machines can learn. Well, for them to learn, they need to be taught in a specific format and specific verbiage. So what are some of the early investors like? Who are you doing business with right now? Our last round was led by Major League Baseball. Uh, we've also worked with the Broadway community, a company called Broadway Eye, which is a consortium of producers and theater owners. And then Red Light Management, which is the largest independent music agency, has also bought in for the entertainment and music festival business. So what do you do for Major League Baseball if I go to City Field, for example? City Field, the company started out of City Field. Uh, we were looking at a menu, and there was a question one of my co-founders asked, hey, you know they have bacon on a stick here. And we said, hey, how could we find bacon on a stick? So we started promoting that idea, and fans asked, where can I get bacon on a stick? And the whole idea kind of flew from that. That is a unique story about how an AI uh, data management company... Defined bacon defi on a stick. Yeah, <laughs> bacon, bacon on a stick, that's how. Uh, I guess that my question is, when we talk about AI, it can be deployed in a whole host of different ways across a whole host of different industries. Just to give people a sense of what we're talking about, is this basically being to call somebody, call a company up, and have a, a robot speak to you in a, in a sufficient way? Is it uh, the concept of predicting a fan's behavior? I mean, what, what exactly are you trying to cater to in the AI sort of umbrella? The future format is messaging. Messaging will be both chat and voice. 
It's really about collecting all the exact answers to questions so that you're not going through some tree, but getting exactly what you need based on your query. So all the technology companies right now are focused on getting their information in a format or a way that now when you do go on to chat, you can get exactly what you need right away. How predictable are we? Do we just ask the same questions over and over again as humans? We have reviewed 9 million questions in just stadiums. And about 80% of them are very similar, but what you'll find is I have 65 different ways to ask where the bathroom is, and it's really interesting to see how people approach that very common question with their own little skew. <laughs> We're really boring, yes, Paul. That's yes, essentially what the nuts and bolts of this are. So what's your relationship with Apple? So we are a developer, we support the platform, so Apple Business Chat has enabled our technology to be put through in LAFC and some of the other stadiums. So LAFC is Los Angeles Football, Football Club. Club. Okay, that's soccer. That right? is soccer. Thank you, just look at me. So if you go to the game tonight, you'll be able to leverage Apple Business Chat to get a beer at a express location. So you can order your beer, pay for it through Apple Pay on your Apple iPhone or, or uh, iPad, and then go walk up and get it right away and go back to your seat. So which industries have most effectively used AI already? So um, AI is heavy in retail. It's now becoming much larger in sports, entertainment, tourism. You'll start to see the transportation companies pick up on it. Uh, pharma, obviously, is another good opportunity, the health, the health area. And I think just the whole food and beverage industry, like we're working with some large brands, both on the beverage side, that are interested in how this data could change the way they predict products. What are people looking for versus what are people getting is a huge area AI can step in. Well, and I think that this is actually super important because people think about it from a messaging standpoint and from you calling someone up and not knowing whether you're dealing with a human or a robot. But when, I, when I've talked to CFOs in particular before, what they say is, we want to understand what to create next and basically how to uh, telegraph demand, sort of the way Netflix does, right, with shows. It's fascinating to me, Paul. Yeah, which, so what are the, some of the other applications here? So I, I kind of get the stadium thing. Uh, what are some of the retail applications of this? So retail is simple as navigating a store. Like you walk into a store, and if you do talk to a person and get guided to a location or a product, the store brand never knows you wanted that product. So this fulfills a demand curve, which is like what you just said, is if we could provide a digital messaging way to get what people want, instead of talking necessarily to a person and looking for the staff, you now know what people are looking for and how you could better stock and provide product. I, I love what this tells us about humans. What have you learned about humans as you try to recreate and teach computers about them? You know, there's a concept in search called the long tail. It means that we all assume that 70% of the things are common. But once you try to conquer that last 30%, all of our interests do become quite unique and personalized. So what I've learned is that we think very broadly about customers, but this personalization move will require AI to really get to what your needs are and my needs are and sell to me what I can consume. Who do you compete against? I mean, there's other companies out in the market. Uh, I won't give them any airtime right? because that's not something that I would do. But there are companies trying to solve the same problem, but we are very dominant in our industry because of our investor group and the people that we've worked with. Got it. Donnie White, thanks so much for joining us. Donnie is the CEO and founder of Satisfy Labs based here in New York City. See, another example of some cool tech 
in New York City. It's not all in Silicon Valley. Oh, look at that. Way to plug Way to plug plug, <laughs> plug the, the house that you're trying to sell. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. I, will say, I will say, I do find it really interesting that we learn more about ourselves as we try to teach computers right. about us sometimes than we would otherwise. And... Uh, and you know, I kind of like that. I kind of like the beer application, you know, because the worst of course thing, you at, like the the beer worst thing at a stadium when you go into a baseball game is you get there and there's a line of 30 people and you miss an inning and a half and it's just not worth it. So I mean, bacon on a stick. Bacon That's what on we a all have wanted to know all this time. Bacon on a stick. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Markets is brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network, home to the industry's most satisfied advisors. Learn more about the firm that's been putting independent advisors and their clients first since 1979. Visit Commonwealth.com. Well, we have the S&P 500 up 20% so far this year. The Fed certainly remains dovish. The economy is slowing, but as we saw today, is still posting solid growth. So the question is, what's next? To help us answer that, we welcome Scott Wren. Scott is a senior global equity strategist for Wells Fargo uh, Investment Management based in St. Louis. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Just want to start off, start off first by getting your sense of kind of what you took away from the GDP numbers this morning. Well, and Paul, first, I want to say before we get started, I want to pass along my uh, condolences to Tom Keene and his family on the loss uh, of his father. So always tough to lose a parent. So I just wanted to say that. Um, But on the GDP number this morning, you know, a little bit better than expected, modest growth. And I think really for us, that's going to be the story for this year. I mean, you know, we have an official number out there of 2.3%. I think that's about right for GDP for the year. So uh, 2.1, you know, 2.3, anywhere in there, uh, not the end of the world by any stretch. And I think that's growth that that the stock market would, uh, would certainly find acceptable. How long can the consumer continue to be strong if business spending doesn't pick up speed here? Yeah, Lisa, I tell you, the the consumption number inside of that GDP number was pretty strong. But I think that, uh, you know, typically when you're when you're later in the cycle and and and, you know, we're certainly in the last third of the cycle, at least we believe we are, you know, the baton would be hung would be handed from the consumer to businesses who would then do capex spending. And that, you know, obviously hasn't happened. But, you know, we we think that uh, we are going to get some kind of trade deal. We need some better business confidence that would help um, in terms of CapEx, because really CapEx spending here in the States um, is, is seeing some headwinds, but also globally with a lot of these trade uncertainties. So, you know, for us, uh, I think we can chug along for uh, at these modest rates of growth without a lot of CapEx spending, but it would certainly improve and broaden the economy if we could see uh, uh, someone other than the consumer uh, carrying the ball down the field. So, Scott, how do you think these GDP numbers will uh influence the Fed as it meets uh, next week? Well, you know, first, let me say that really, in our opinion, we don't think the Fed needs to do anything. I mean, you know, we, we're, we're, at a, we're at a good level of uh, unemployment, obviously. Uh, inflation is modest, although a little bit below uh, the target. But, uh, you know, we're looking for a quarter point. And, you know, th- this this next week, you know, between some potential uh, positive or negative comments coming out of these trade negotiations uh, with, with Mnuchin and Lighthizer in Shanghai, and then the 
the Wednesday announcement from the Fed uh, where, you know, you could make a rational argument that they should do nothing, uh, the quarter point we're expecting, or you could make a, a, an argument for uh, the shock and awe of a 50 basis point cut. So um, the Fed's probably going to kind of, you know, Keep you know keep it right down the middle. Do a 25 basis point cut. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, inflation and a little bit about um, some risk to global growth. But you know from, from our perspective, you know are, are you really going to get much bang for your buck? You do 25 now, maybe do 25 in, in September. You know it seems like you're not going to get much bang for your buck. And if that's what the Fed is trying to do uh, with a rate cut. Um, I'm not, not quite sure 25 basis points is going to do it. Well, regardless of whether or not it will work, it does seem like the markets are pricing in a 25 basis point rate cut next week, in addition to a possibly two more later in the year. And I'm wondering what this means for global equities, but particularly U.S. equities. You have them close to all-time highs yet again today. Do you think that this is supportive, especially with that strong consumer? Well, I do think it's supportive, and and you know, for us, uh, stocks are not far from uh, what we would consider they're they're at or very close to what we would consider fair value. You know, you look out over the next twelve months, uh, you know, maybe you can get uh, you know six percent higher, something like that. But I think the most important thing, Lisa, is that you have reassurance from the Fed that should this global growth deteriorate, which it seems like you know certainly the risk is to the downside, that the Fed's ready to step in. I think that's what the market really wanted to hear. Um, um, you know, we think there'll be two cuts this year. Three seems uh, three seems excessive, but uh, um, I think it's safe to say that not only is the U.S. Federal Reserve. Um, uh, have the economy and the markets back, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, let's face it, little, literally every major central bank on the planet uh, is either easing or trying to figure out how to ease. I was a little surprised that the ECB didn't actually do something yesterday. I thought, you know, I mean, it's like, come on, you know, uh, Germany's uh, PMI is down at 43 and change, and you're talking about doing something in September. You know, I, I just... Um, I don't really get the ECB. I mean, I think they need to need to act. But um, in any case, these central banks are in an easing mode that's going to be uh, at least a, a positive for the market and not a negative. So, Scott, given where we are in this economic cycle, 10 plus years into it, what sectors do you suggest investors take a look at here? Well, I tell you, you know, we've in in recent months we've taken a little bit of money off the table. Uh, we've backed off of stocks in general, but what we're still where we still have a good lean on is sectors, and we're, we we think this expansion is going to continue. Uh, we continue to like uh, technology, consumer discretionary, industrials. Uh, we do like financials, which has been you know certainly certainly dicey um, on a year-to-date basis. They've trailed not by a lot, but by by a bit. Um, so we, we want to be in those sectors that are going to benefit from a continuation of this, this expansion. We think that's still the way to go. We don't want our clients getting defensive here and, and loading up on staples and utilities and, 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 and things like that. So that's the way we're leaning. Um, I think that's where you're going to see the best uh, earnings, earnings growth happen, not just in this reporting quarter we're seeing, but as we look ahead over the next uh, 12 months or so. Just real quick, why shouldn't investors just do 60-40 portfolio, put it there, keep it there, not think about it again? 
Well, you know, I tell you one thing, Lisa, if you do that and you've had this gigantic run in here, uh, you, you, at the very least, you need to look at doing some rebalancing to get back to that 60-40. Because if you've had that split and you started that seven years ago or something like that, you're going to be way out of whack. And there's a lot to be said. Most of our clients and most retail investors, that's the foundation of your portfolio, whether it's 60-40 or whatever it is. And then you've got some portion of that portfolio you try to be a little lighter on your feet on and be in the right sectors and that in the right sectors out of the, the sectors that are going to underperform. So, um, the foundation of your portfolio should be in it for the long haul. You can trim it and work around the edges, but you know, mostly the stock market, you need to have the bulk of your assets uh, dedicated. Scott Wren, thank you so much for being with us. Scott Wren, Senior Global Equity Strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute, which oversees nearly $2 trillion. Uh, interesting to think about that, Paul, and it's actually a really important point, which is that stocks have outperformed so dramatically yep. that you have to then reallocate some of that back to bonds or reallocate some of the money that you've gotten cast off from dividends uh, into stocks. So where are you going to go? But right now, looks like it's pretty good backdrop with central banks saying, we got your back. And the consumer still going strong. This is Bloomberg. So we got that second quarter GDP print this morning. It was better than people expected. Still, still signified a slowdown in the U.S. economy. The key question, though, for many people is what will this mean for the Federal Reserve? Is this a good sign or a bad sign for the U.S. economy? Here to tell us the answer to that, Carl Rakadana, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics uh, here in our 1130 studios. Carl, there was good news and there was bad news. The good news was the consumer. The bad news was business expenditures uh, and a number of other data points. What's your main takeaway from this report? Well, I'm going to stick with the uh, theme of the hour uh, here, which uh, seems to be caffeine and coffee. So uh... <laughs> Great. Let's just talk about coffee. What kind exactly. of coffee do you See, like? The segue there. No, no, no. Not, not what kind of coffee. I, well, I like free coffee. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the theme here is that uh, the caffeination of consumers and consumer spending uh, really drove the show uh, in Q2. And this is really providing a template for what growth is going to look like over the next several quarters. So you want to see the, the Q3 and the Q4 uh, GDP report in advance, uh, just take a look at what you saw today uh, in the Q2 numbers. Uh, business investment has been rattled by slowing global growth, trade tensions with China uh, in particular. Uh, these things are not going away anytime soon, uh, nor is the low level of the unemployment rate and the, the tailwind that that's providing to household income generation. Uh, and so consumer spending uh, is going to uh, not go away anytime soon uh, either. And so really this modern modestly above trend pace of overall economic growth driven by consumers uh, is uh, you know the, the new normal uh, for the economy for the foreseeable future. So Carl, you mentioned uh, trade as being an impact. Uh, we have some uh, tweets from Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council uh, today, just coming across uh, saying the U.S. and China not expected to reach a grand deal next week. Uh, that's according to Mr. Kudlow. How important is getting something done on trade or not to these GDP numbers that we're seeing? Well, absolutely, we see a significant distortion. We saw it in uh, in the back half of last year. We saw it in the Q1 numbers uh, when uh, the trade gap narrowed dramatically uh, and inventory levels uh, increased. All of that was due to trade saber rattling because producers are trying to pad their supply chains and rush uh, materials in before tariffs go into effect. And uh, uh, they're afraid to make capital outlays as they don't know what the next uh, uh, twists uh, and turns in the uh, trade war uh, will 
will actually be. Uh, so we're certainly seeing an, an impact in the economic data, especially business investment. Uh, and will that go away anytime soon? Uh, I'm uh, very much in the Cudlow camp here that I don't see any grand compromise uh, coming down the pike uh, probably not until at least after the election uh, in 2020. So we may see uh, little deals on Huawei or soybean or agricultural purchases and whatnot. Uh, We're not going to see a a grand compromise because that's, uh, I think, an important pillar of President Trump's reelection campaign. So the big question, WWTFD. What would the Fed do, right? I mean, the question is here. Oh, very good. <laughs> I'm thinking aloud. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what does this all mean for the expected three rate cuts that we're going to get this year? Well, this means that uh, next week's uh, 25 basis point cut uh, is largely appropriate uh, for the Fed. Uh, I think that they'll follow through with another rate cut probably at the December meeting, maybe October. I don't think the Fed wants to go back to back with 25 basis points July, 25 basis points in September. Uh, Then you start to create a feeding frenzy uh, in the marketplace where the market is going to then drag the Fed into a more pronounced easing cycle than the Fed really wants to engage in. But but here's my question. I mean, does this GDP report move the needle in any way, shape, or form, even this, though this it came doesn't in move better. The needle. It doesn't so move the needle. It I gives mean, the Fed confidence that consumers are looking good. It also reinforces their concerns about a weak business investment climate. And which, is, which is almost, I mean, I don't want to say entirely due to trade, but significantly due to trade tensions. It's trade, it's slowing global growth, and it's a strong dollar, which is part of the reason why the Fed needs to ease. If central banks around the globe are easing, which we saw hints that that is coming soon uh, from the ECB. We've already seen it from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, a a slew of emerging market uh, central banks, Turkey earlier this week. If everyone else is easing and the Fed is not, uh, you're going to have a very strong trade-weighted dollar, which is a de facto uh, tightening of monetary conditions in the U.S. economy. So the Fed needs to do a little bit of easing just to avoid the dollar blowing through the roof uh, and really uh, topple both uh, the export sector and and a lot of domestic industry, uh, which is sensitive to uh, currency strength as well. Carl Rokadana, thank you so much for the perspective. Carl Rokadana, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, Talking about that GDP report, U.S. growth slowing to 2.1%, still ahead of the expected 1.8% in the quarter and year uh, in annual terms. We do want to just bring you those headlines that we had uh, earlier about U.S. and China not expected to reach some sort of grand deal next week. This according to Larry Kudlow speaking on CNBC. He also said that the White House is ruled out any currency intervention, uh, shooting down some speculation that President Trump may intervene to weaken the dollar further. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.